of the study. So I've given my wife direction. She's going to, Carla's going to come in here when we close tonight. And I've picked a theme song to use the next three Wednesday nights. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to put the hymn up on the screen. I'm not as fancy as Jim. There's no snowfall or, or waterfalls or snow falling or anything like that. But I do have the words and music up there for you. So we're going to close with a great hymn tonight about assurance. To begin with, let's look tonight in John chapter 20, verse 31. That's right, John 20, 31. This is a study of the epistle of 1 John, but we want to begin by reading a, a, pers- a verse of Scripture in John chapter 20, verse 31. So what you can do, in fact, I need to do this as well, is turn to, put your thumb in 1 John 5 and hold that place. 1 John 5, just put your thumb there. And then let's go to first uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter twenty. Help me if I get there too. First, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter twenty, verse thirty-one. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now flip over to 1 John chapter 5. Verse 13. John writes here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. I wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago to a niece of mine. She's 17 years old. It's about a page-long letter, and the last paragraph of that letter, there was a a sentence. I, I said something like this in the last paragraph of that letter. Andrea, called her name, said, Andrea, Many years ago, or several years ago, I made a commitment to your parents that if anything ever happened to them, I would father you. I would become a father to you. I would love you like my own. I would take care of you. You can have confidence that I remain committed to that. Now, for Andrea, that was a summary statement That was a very strong statement, which was indicative of the purpose of that letter. If she remembers anything out of that letter, she's going to remember that statement. I just firmed it up once again. I'm committed to this. I love you with all my heart. Anything ever happens to your parents, I'll take care of you like like you're one of my own. Now, guys, that's exactly what John has done here in these verses. Now, although 1 John doesn't clearly say that it is the Apostle John who's writing this letter. Most scholars agree that it is the Apostle John that writes the epistles. And in the Gospel of John, he's made a statement. We've, I've written these things so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God. And now in this epistle, he writes, I write these things, or these things I have written, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so this summary in 1 John 5.13 carries us beyond the Gospel of John to the great epistles. 
You see, the Gospel of John was written to arouse faith in Jesus Christ. The epistles now have been written to establish our faith, to firm up our faith. In the fourth Gospel, the reader is introduced to the great evangel, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so beautifully illustrated in the story of Nicodemus. John chapter 3, you know the story. This Pharisee, the religious leader, who comes to Jesus by night, and he proposes that great question. He asks Jesus, Teacher, how can a man be born when he's old? Now Jesus, in answering Nicodemus, explains to him very clearly what the gospel is about. And in that great passage that's memorized by so many, the famous passage, John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now the word believe that John uses there is the Greek word that means, literally, to cast your well, spiritual well-being upon another. And John writes, in order to stir up faith in men like Nicodemus, for whoever believes, he would say later, for whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. Then we come now again to the epistle of John, and we get a picture now. If, if the gospel of John is to arouse faith, the epistle is to establish in our faith, establishes in our faith, we get a picture of what the Christian should look like. Did you know that John is the only one that gives us both a gospel and a teaching epistle? It's the only apostle that does it. We get a gospel from John and a teaching epistle. So thus, through John, we gain not only a portrait of Jesus, but a full-orbed picture of what the Christian life should look like. Now, here's a beautiful combination, guys. I, I, I purposely have used this venue to introduce the epistle of John because I want you to see this beautiful combination of the gospel of John and the epistle. The gospel of John shows us, teaches us the miracle of regeneration. We are saved only through Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone. So there's a beautiful picture of the miracle of regeneration flowing all through the Gospel of John. And we come to the epistle, and here we see the miracle of sanctification. If the Gospel is the miracle of the Gospel of John is the miracle of regeneration, the epistle of John is the miracle of sanctification. And in that, John will teach us ultimately that we are sanctified by grace. And we don't think of it like that often, do we? We think of regeneration as an act of um, a miracle of grace. We don't think in terms of our sanctification as a process of grace. But it is, guys. We are being sanctified by grace as well. Now, guys, John, through John's teaching, the gospel and the epistle, we are introduced to Christ who achieves in himself the covenant principle, the covenant promise. What was God's covenant to us? God's covenant to His people of old. In the Old Testament, God said to Abraham, what were His words? I shall be your God, and you shall be my people. Uh, guys, that is a two-fold covenant. That's a covenant bond consisting of two parts. God says to us, to you and I, 
I shall be your God. <laughs> I shall be your God. A gospel. This is a gospel that brings reconciliation to us. It makes possible communion with the Heavenly Father. And God's promise to Israel of old was literally, God, I will pitch my tent in your midst. I'll be your God. So in the gospel, we are reconciled to God. I shall be your God. And God said, you shall be my people. The covenant bond in, includes not only God's reconciling work, but God's intention, not only His intention to redeem us, but His determination to sanctify us. Not only are we saved, God says, through this covenant bond, this covenant promise, not only am I going to save you, but I'm going to conform you into the image of my Son. You're going to look like you belong to me. So the twofold covenant bond, I shall be your God, you shall be my people. And we see this beautifully flowing out of the Gospel of John and now the Epistle of 1 John. Uh, a common thread woven throughout the Gospel of John and his epistles is the doctrine of Christ. Uh, You've got to get your Christology right. This is for sure. Guys, we've got to get this doctrine of Christ right. To Nicodemus, Jesus would say, No one has ascended, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. You know what he's talking about there? I mean, with that statement, what Jesus is doing is identifying, making very plain to Nicodemus his divine origin. Jesus would rebuke Nicodemus for any false religion, any false systems of religious works. He would say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, think about it. It's really utter foolishness to think that a person can gain access to the Father in heaven to find answers on his own. It's foolishness. By the statement, he's saying the only person that ha can have that kind of access to the Father is one who has descended from heaven. He's saying to Nicodemus, I am not simply a great teacher, Nicodemus. I'm not only a, a great prophet. I am God in human flesh. And guys, it comes down to our culture today, to our time today. Man has to either accept what Jesus says and believe it, or he's left with his sin. So John writes this letter in order that we may know that we have eternal life. Now, what I want to do tonight to... Uh, finish up uh, this introduction, this is all really introduction material, I want to give you some, some clues as to how to study the, the first epistle of John. And we do that by putting it into context. And that's very important. Context is very important. Now guys, back to my niece's letter. Now, if you read that letter, if I, I wouldn't dare bring a copy of that letter in here and let you read it, but if you read that letter, and you, uh, you'd put it down and, and, and about the most you would say after reading that letter would be, said, well, Richard's a pretty nice guy. He's taking time out to, to uh, take time out from his busy schedule to write in his niece and to encourage her. But what if I told you that Andrea, my niece, um, is suffering from clinical depression, has been suicidal on medication under a doctor's care, her parents are just beside themselves and in worry and 
and I'm writing because of those circumstances to encourage her. What have I done? What we've done there is we've put that statement I made in context. And you would read that letter with a whole different opinion, looking for for any kind of um, evidence that I'm sending her valid messages, messages of hope. You would read it with an entire different perspective. And so that's what we want to do with First John. Now, to put John, First John, really in context, we want to. We need to look at chapter two. Look at First John chapter two. There's a couple of verses there I want to read tonight. First John chapter two. Verse 18 and 19. Look at that. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now we could say with that statement that John has, has given us quite a bit of background, opened up our eyes, given us quite a bit of a, a context of what's going on in this first century, actually first century churches of Asia Minor. You heard the word schism before? You're familiar with the word schism? We don't use it a lot in our English language here, but um, if, in fact, I, my dictionary defines schism as a, a separation of way or a party, a break, a disagreement, especially among religious groups. I don't know the true. Um, how would you say that? I don't. I don't know how where the word really derived from the word schism, but I would bet. You can maybe look it up if you got the, uh, the means to do it. I wouldn't be surprised if the word schism wasn't really born out of the ecclesiastical world because it's, it's used a lot in church history. Even old ancient church history, you'll see these words, this word of the idea of schism coming up. Identifying breaks in the body of Christ over doctrinal issues. Um, anybody been reading, the, I think it was Monday's newspaper, you might have seen it on the news, uh, we're having some church trouble here locally in the city. Um, is it Olivet Baptist? Is that the church? Yeah. Olivet Baptist of uh, Orange Mound. Did you read that Monday's paper? It was on the news too. Now, guys, what's um, what's going on in that church? As far as I can tell, from when I've read the paper and watched it on the news, is uh, does not warrant a schism. In fact, those dear people, they need to take care of business inside those walls and settle that issue. I'm, if, if they don't, that church is going to split over some of the issues going on in that church. Now, that's a good old southern church split. That's not a schism. Because schisms, some schisms are necessary in the church. And you'll see them throughout churches. There, there just comes a time when you've got to part ways over issues. The Reformation's a great example. The great, a great watershed period in church history. Luther, Calvin, the others said it's, it's time. Now what was one of the great issues of, of the, the Reformation? Justification by faith alone was one. Anything, any, remember any other issues in, in the... 
indulgences. Um, what about the priesthood of all believers? Fundamental. Now, guys, those were issues that warranted it was time to part ways. And there are other, we can, you can back up to the first century. And here's evidence of one of the earliest schisms in the church going on. Now, I'm not going to go into the details tonight. I want to save it for next Wednesday night. I'm going to try to uh, this, um, explain some of the what scholars believe, some of the doctrinal issues that were going on in the early church. It's important that we understand that to get a, a real good understanding of 1 John. But this schism that's going on, apparently there uh, has been a problem in the church over doctrinal issues and leaders in the church had left. Leaders in the church, of, in some of the churches in Asia Minor had left the congregations and gone out on their own and kind of started other churches. And some of the members in these churches were either following them or discouraged in their faith. So it's apparent this is what's going on. So with that, we find here one of the purposes of 1 John is a corrective purpose. Um, those who had seceded were attempting to lead others astray. And John, in very powerful terminology, points out, identifies these people. He calls them false prophets, chapter 4, verse 1. We just read in chapter 2, verse 18, he calls them antichrist, antichrist. Now that's very fundamental. It's key to our understanding because these people, uh, these leaders in the church that had uh, were causing trouble in the church, had um, left the fundamental doctrine or teachings of the apostles, especially on the doctrine of Christ. And they were saying things like, Christ has not come in the flesh. Jesus is not the Christ. And there were some who were even teaching that it's possible for Christians to live a sin-free life. Now next week, again, when we, when we begin, one of the things I'm going to do is show you how their thinking progressed to this point. How they, could, how they could even come to the point after sitting under some of the great apostles and their teachings, how they could come to the point to believe that it's possible to live a sin-free life. So we'll see that next week. So one of the first purposes of the first epistle of John is a corrective purpose. John wants to correct these falsehoods and this false doctrine. And the second thing, the second major purpose of the epistles, actually 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, is a constructive purpose. What John wants to do is to give the young believers assurance. I want you to know that you have eternal life. I want you to be confident that you are in Christ. Now, let me ask you, why do you think that gold is necessary? Why, why is it necessary that John spend this time and write these epistles to give people assurance? Why the question of assurance? Why do you think it's uh, necessary now? It's connected to what's going on with these false leaders. Because false teaching will often cause doubt in the Christian life. False teaching will often cause doubt in the Christian life. Now, I, I got a little grid I want to show you. I'm going to put it up on the board, um, on the screen here. And I, I, it's up here because it, it, um, I think it gives us an, a kind of a, it's kind of a, a, a venue or way to think about our salvation and self-awareness. Where are you tonight in, in, in your salvation? 
and your self-awareness. Maybe this will help. It's got four, you know, the, the grid, four different points here. On the left-hand side, that would be the, the column of the unregenerate. On the right-hand side would be the column of the regenerate. Now, guys, every man and woman either falls under one of two columns. You're either regenerate or you're unregenerate. And every person in this room fits in one of those boxes. Now, where are you in your salvation in what I'm calling self-awareness? Do you know there are people who are lost and don't know it? They're unregenerate, they're lost, and don't even know it. you know some people like that? Neighbors, maybe even some relatives. Guys, I really believe in our pluralistic society that we live in that a lot, maybe if not the majority, of lost people fall in this category in America. Lost and don't know it. I have people I know that I've I've had meals with just to counsel, just to just to uh, share the gospel with them. Uh, I know that they're in this category. Um, I, I know people who have uh, the, the attitude that uh, they're almost they're. I guess you could say they're universalist. Everybody will ultimately be saved. Lots of people like that, and that's that's kind of a, uh, a stepchild of pluralism. Every religion's good. All religions have the same goal. They're climbing up the same mountain ultimately to reach the same God. Everybody's got their different systems, but ultimately we're all going to get there. They fall into that category. They're lost and don't know it. As a side note here, gang, um, I believe this may be the area where the church, if, if we're very clear in our teaching, this, this may be the area where we face persecution in our culture. And some of it's already going on. Now, guys, I, I'm, I'm a, I see it. I can watch it on television. I've seen some of it on Larry King Live. I, I, I watch it quite frequently because I like some of the context of what's going on. And, and uh, the Southern Baptists currently are receiving lots of heat because they've taken a stand on some issues. And I appreciate the stand they're taking on some of these issues. Uh, you know the... Um, the uh, Robert, I think his name is Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R. I don't have it. I guess that's how you pronounce. It. He's the president of Southeastern Seminary. Have you seen that guy? He impresses me. This guy takes a stand on these issues, like pluralism, and he'll take a stand against cultural moral deviation in our country, and he won't apologize for it. But he does it in a loving way. Now, the Southern Baptists just recently have been taking lots of uh, flack over um, the issue of, of their stand against Orthodox Judaism. You've seen some of that on television. They're, t they're getting a lot of heat from that because of a pluralistic culture that we live in. And lots of our people fall into that category. They're lost and don't know it. The other unregenerate in, the, in that column is the lost, and they know it. You know anybody like that? You know anyone that's openly hostile to the gospel? They understand the gospel. They even believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. But they're hostile toward that. Uh, they, they know they're lost, and they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. There's some people in that category. Now we move to the right-hand column, and this is the regenerate side. There are some people, even in this church, who are saved and don't know it. you know anybody like that? 
They're in a state of grace and they don't know it. These are the people that are wrongly afflicted. And this is one of the audiences that John is writing to. These are people who are afflicted. They do not know that they're saved. They're really in a regenerate state. They're under grace and they don't know it. And they're falsely afflicted. There are people like that in this church. I've had a conversation with a lady just in recent weeks that attends this church. She's falsely afflicted. Um, by the way, one of the things I'm going to do beginning next Wednesday night, we're going to begin, um, I'm trying to do it one next Wednesday night and one the next week, a testimony of somebody in this church that have, has been sometime in their Christian life has been falsely afflicted. They've doubted their salvation. If, if any of you have struggled with that in the past, I'd love to talk with you after church night. I've got, I've interviewed one person today that's probably going to give a testimony next Wednesday night as we begin. I'm going to kind of give some questions and to, to help you understand this. So if, if you're struggling, if you, maybe you're struggling now, or you struggled in your past with uh, doubting your salvation, I'd love to talk with you tonight after the study. But there are some who are saved and don't know it. And then there are some who are saved and know it. And I hope that makes up the majority of the people here tonight. You're regenerate. You're certain of your election and your calling. You know that you're saved. You're clear on that. You're, you have a sound understanding of what God requires. And you know that you've met those requirements. I hope that's where you are. If you're not there, I hope that by the time we end our study in 1 John, that you'll be there. So the constructive purpose of 1 John is to give assurance to Christians who are wrongly afflicted. But there's something else. You see, and you, really, guys, you think about the purpose of Grace Event as a church. Now, we've got a mission statement, don't we? Reaching the unchurched world through maturing Christians. But we could really, we could define our purpose in another way. There's a twofold purpose for this church, especially in the, in the area of preaching, faithfully preaching the gospel. You know what it is? One of the purposes is to comfort Christians who are falsely afflicted. We want you, if you're truly saved, to have assurance to know that you're saved. The other purpose is to afflict those among us who are comforted and shouldn't be comforted. We want to bring affliction to those who are lost and don't know it. Well, maybe that's include some of you tonight. If so, I hope after we study 1 John, if you need to be afflicted, you're afflicted as a result of the study of God's Word. Now, guys, what, what are some reasons that people doubt their salvation? Have you ever thought about this? Why do you think people doubt their salvation? What could, what could be going on in, uh, in the Christian life that could bring doubt? Go ahead. Pardon me? Oh, yeah. Um, especially great moral failure. Someone really fails morally. Maybe it's a notorious open public sin, and they failed. And as a result of that, they begin to doubt their salvation. Good, good one. Sin. Some of us are, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm often falsely afflicted by Satan. I'll tell you when I get afflicted often. It'll happen this weekend. I'm going to preach this Sunday morning, this coming Sunday. Very often, I get afflicted, falsely afflicted by Satan before I preach. Why, you dirty old nasty thing. You you know what you thought about this week? And on and on it goes. And You know what? I have to just, you know, I, I have to 
put Satan behind me and, and I remind him I'm under grace. I'm under grace. But sin does it. causes us to doubt. What else? Temptation. Temptation? We're certainly um, physical beings. We have the old nature that we struggle with. Temptation. What about good works? You know, some people are trying to sanctify themselves by works. They're trying to become sanctified by works, not grace. They fail to realize that even our sanctification is a process of grace. God is determined to sanctify us, and that's a process of grace. But they're trying to, and, and guys, I think there's a lot of Christians, even in this church, are trying to sanctify themselves by work. The more I do, the more sanctified I'm going to become. The more I, the more good works I do, the more God will like me. The more I'm accepted, and often, that's that vicious cycle can cause doubt. One to doubts one's true salvation. Why? The element of works is back in there. We've interjected a works-based kind of salvation. What about emotionalism? Mm. Emotionalism. Um, you ever have days you don't feel like you're saved? Man, I don't feel like I'm saved. If you if you base your salvation, your confidence on how you feel, you're going to very often doubt whether you're regenerate or not, or you're safe in God, in Christ. I've got a couple more here. Uh, maybe God's um, let us down. Um, a failure. Uh, you know, you think God has failed you. Maybe, a, what about a tremendous loss? You've, maybe you've lost a loved one. And uh, God's let you down, you think, and it's causing you to doubt your salvation. Skepticism. This is the constant doubter. Uh, this is the person. And I think next week, the person who I'm going to interview, I think this has been one of her struggles. She's she's kind of had the attitude that there's there's no um, no knowledge is really trustworthy, and Satan often attacks that way. He attacks our systems of doctrine, our thinking, our, the Word of God. There's really no ultimate truth, and a lot of people live their lives as skeptics. Even Christians, they get skeptical, and if they're not careful, they have an attitude of skepticism, and it can cause one to doubt salvation. Now. I've just summarized some of those. There are other things, but John adds one to the list. What John adds to the list is the fact that seeing people whom you admire leave the church can cause doubt. Uh, these were leaders in the church that have failed, maybe turned, begin to teach false doctrine whatever, turned and walked away and left. And it has caused doubt. People have lost their assurance in the church. Now, let's put it in context for us. Well, Carol, you don't, I hope you don't mind me using your example, but um, I don't think she will. But guys, I have a lot of respect for Carol Austell. And Carol, I, I have written your name down. I didn't expect you here tonight. But um, I, I had this note down here for, with Carol Austell as an example. But I have a lot of respect for Carol. I, I admire her because of her her um, spiritual growth, her maturity, her wisdom. I just really admire Carol Austin, and a lot of people do in this church. A lot of people do. What if Carol Austell 
failed morally, fell into sexual immorality, left the kids and left Steve, turned her back on the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. It caused lots of people to begin to doubt their salvation. And that's, that's what John is writing about. Spiritual leaders, strong leaders in the church have begun to teach false doctrine, even turned away, walked out of the church, and have called, has caused people to doubt their salvation. Now guys, I'll wrap it up here because we're getting close to time. This is where we find the practical side of the issue of assurance. We've got to get it right. We've got to get this right. If we confuse the issue of assurance of salvation, there are going to be multitudes in the church whose spiritual lives are constantly crippled by doubt, uh, frustration. It's going to stunt their spiritual growth on that hand. On the other hand, there's going to be a, a large number of people who will be expected to be ushered into heaven. And on that day, they're going to be devastated when they hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, I never knew you depart. So we've got to get this issue right. How can a person know that he, is, he or she is truly saved? And that's what 1 John's going to do for us. And here's John's twofold strategy is, is this. He, there are objective grounds. There are some objective grounds that John will use to bring assurance to the, to the body. You know what, what it is? John will say, you can believe. I saw him. You can believe it's true. I saw Jesus Christ with my own eyes. That's an objective approach, an objective grounds that John will use. The other is more subjective, which will most of our study will be centered upon this. We have assurance from the Holy Spirit that we are truly born again. Now, here are the three approaches. The three tests, I would be, be better, better to say, the three tests of true faith. I hope you can see that. I hope you don't have a bit too bad of a vision problem. We're going to see it first, John. There's a social test, there's a moral test, and there's a theological test. You pass these tests, you can know that you're saved. Now, you can see here with this how John, first John, is laid out. This is not a not in a narrative form. It's not chapter 1, introduction, chapter 2, social test, chapter 3, moral test, chapter 4, theological test, and chapter 5, conclusion. It's not like that. First John is written in parallel. You see what I did? I did this just, I think, yesterday, Monday or yesterday. I sat down and read through First John, and I put verses in, in the columns. And you can do that. Here's what I want you to do. Each week, starting this week, she, she'll do it three times. This week, before, you, before the weekend, I want you to read through First John and see if you can pick out these three three tests. And then next week, I want you to read through it again. The final week we do it, I want you to read through it again. I want you to become really familiar with 1 John. And then we'll, as we begin next week, we're going to look at the social and moral, and we'll save the theological probably until the last week. We'll catch two next week, and um, the last one the last week. So, you get a feel of what 1 John's about. Now, guys, here's my theme song. Carly, you want to come up? Should have brought Jim's harmonica in here, too. This would have been good. Oh, do y'all know that song? We don't sing it very... Do you know that song, Now I Belong to Jesus? 
You don't know that? That's why we got the, the, the music up here. Oh, Carla is... Huh? Well, look, here's what I can do. Maybe, Carla, we may need to blow that up. Uh, but I'm afraid if you need the music. Each week we're going to... Would that be better? I mean, can you sing by ear?